0: So Romans 1, verse 18, let us hear God's word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. They became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, and the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, (coughs) backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. The grass withers, the flower fades, for the word of our God endures forever. As we begin here today, I want you to think of uh, a sin that you have committed, maybe something here recently. Uh, Maybe it's a particular sin. Maybe it's something that you continually fall into, a so-called besetting sin. Uh, Maybe it's an issue of uh, going on the Internet to places where you shouldn't, uh, chat rooms or pornography or something. Maybe it's uh, issues of pride and thinking yourself better than everyone else. Uh, Maybe it's uh, telling tall tales to make yourself look better In the eyes of others, maybe it's something that you covet and uh, you wish you had for yourself. Whatever it is, when we think of these particular sins, we usually think, well, okay, these sins are going to lead to particular consequences, and rightfully so. That's what we should think. Uh, But Paul is going to take us more deeply than this thought uh, here in this chapter And uh, so we will look at that here in a moment. Uh, uh, For my review from last week, uh, I had some questions and comments and such that were made. And so instead of my normal two or three minute review here, uh, I'm going to spend a little bit more time here this morning. Uh, But last time I spent time moving from the words of Paul in verses 18 to 23 to some important implications for the topic of apologetics and even witnessing. Um, Peter tells us, of course, that we must be able to defend the faith. This isn't just something for me or the leaders of the church, but all believers. And there are three primary ways people have approached this. Um, and some focus on the evidence, some focus on rational arguments. And these approaches are good. They are necessary. They are helpful. But they do fall short in the fact that they ignore where the five senses come from and where the laws of logic come from. As it were, they begin at first base and not in the batter's box. And they never make it all the way around a home plate because you can never prove definitively, through reason and evidence, anything. And so they require a leap of faith, as it were, at the end. And so they leave us between third and home And it takes that leap of faith in order to score a run, so to speak. The third approach is more comprehensive. And there has been uh, a variety of misunderstandings about presuppositionalism over the years. Uh, But the primary emphasis here is that we begin at home plate. We don't ignore the presuppositions that the other two approaches do. And we focus not on the human mind not on experience, not on reason. That's not our focal point because sin has corrupted the mind. Rather, we focus on God's revelation, general revelation and special revelation. And so by so doing, we can legitimately arrive at first base. We're made in God's image. And so we can actually explain how we get there. Because God has told us how. Now, another aspect to all this is that our words cannot change anyone. No matter how good your argument is, no matter how much evidence you have, no matter how much you emphasize presuppositions, hey, we cannot change anyone's heart. It's God's words that do. The words that are spoken to us in creation, as well as, of course, the ones spoken in His Word through the Spirit. This is how hearts are changed. But God has given us the responsibility to bring these things. We bring the presuppositions, we focus on it, and we use evidence. We use rational argument. It's often said that people in presuppositional approaches don't use evidence. That's not true at all. We don't use rational argument. That's not true at all. That's a misunderstanding of this approach. And so now that we can legitimately come to first, we can then rightly use rational arguments and evidence to arrive at home plate. Now, I mentioned in passing Paul's approach at the Areopagus. So let's turn there just a moment to Acts chapter 17 and uh, just expand on it briefly here today um, from my passing comment last week. Uh, In Acts 17, especially beginning in verse 22, we see that Paul is in Athens at the Areopagus or is uh, using the Latin names, Mars Hill. Um, And notice that Paul meets people where they are. In verse 22, it says that, you know, he walked through the city and such into verse 23 and he saw that they were very religious. So he meets them where they are. And then... Notice that he openly refers to God. He doesn't try to reason way to God without God. He doesn't try to give evidence without talking about God. No, he makes reference to God directly in verses 23 and following. Notice that he also is using general revelation. There in verse 23, they're worshiping an unknown God. They they know this God from general revelation, they are suppressing the truth. They don't want to know his name. Okay. And then notice even down in verse 28, he uses rational argument from their own philosophers. Uh, he indicates that their idols show their suppression of truth. Look at verses 29 and 30. Okay. And notice the evidence that he gives in verse 26. Made from one blood, every nation, and and their boundaries, and so forth. And so he's focusing on God's providence there. Through it all, he's rationally demonstrating the points, but notice how he approached it presuppositionally. He knew that they knew the truth deep down. He met them where they are, and then he helped them to see what the truth was. Unfortunately, not many people listened, but noticed his approach. It is a model for us to follow. Presuppositionalism is what I was trained to do in seminary. This isn't just my opinion. And probably, I would say, at least two-thirds of the people in Reformed circles are presuppositionalists, maybe even more. Um, Those who are not would be the classical apologists. And uh, these are the two most common approaches in our circles. Now, the goal of evangelism, the goal of apologetics is to persuade others to believe in Christ. That is true. But we cannot do so in our own strength. And so we defend the faith, we defend what we believe, we proclaim Christ using God's word in both nature and scripture through the power of the Spirit. Now what's important here is that we do not meet people on their turf of suppression and sin and use their tactics of denying God and eating of the tree the knowledge of good and evil. Okay. Paul didn't do it that way. He met them where they are, but didn't use their ball and bat, so to speak. Okay. We meet them where they are, but we use reason. We use evidence within a biblical framework to help them to see what is obviously true. A very helpful way of doing this is simply asking questions. Paul does not do this at the Areopagus. He does some, but you could do more. Um, And and this can really help to bring out what their worldview is and where it falls short. Now, they may raise questions for us that we don't necessarily know how to answer. But there is an answer. Hey, Jesse asked me last week, you know, what about the Muslim? Who uh, says the Quran is is, uh, clear evidence that Allah is the true God. Well, fair question. The way you can answer that is say, okay, well, does Allah fit up with what we see of God in nature? No. God is not a personal God in the Muslim viewpoint. But if you look at nature, clearly Yahweh is. In the Muslim God, there, there's no relationship with him. There, there's no grace, according to Allah but you look out in the creative world and you see a different God very clearly. So there are ways to do it. We may not always know how to respond to this, but there definitely are. And so when you're talking to people, press them to explain how they uh, know what they know, uh, why their worldview fits and works together, and uh, that uh, point out where it doesn't, and how actually how their system holds together is because they're stealing from the truth to make their system work. Well, there's so much to say here, and again, I'm responding to some of the comments and questions that I received, so I have a little further and more elaborate review here, um, but there's so much for us to talk about practically, too, and maybe we'll do some of that in Sunday school at some point. Well, with all that in mind, and um at verses 18 to 23 in mind, Uh, let's come now to verse 24. And notice that Paul begins here with the word, therefore. So in verses 18 to 20, he said that all men suppress the truth about God, even though he has clearly made himself known to everyone. And so therefore, God gives them over. Verses 21 to 23. Instead of worshiping God, instead of thanking him, everyone refuses God and exchanges the truth of God for some other God and idol that we have invented. And so whether it's different religions, a figurine, idols of the mind, whatever it is. And so therefore, because of that, God is angry and pours out his wrath upon us. But Paul here is not talking About the final judgment. He certainly believes in it, and he talks about it elsewhere, but that's not his point here. The wrath that God pours out upon people for suppressing the truth and rejecting him is wrath that we see every day. It's something that happens now in this life. God's wrath upon us daily. Now, notice the key word that Paul gives us here in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. And verse 28, even though they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. It's the same word in the Greek in all three places. And so three times, God is giving up. God is handing over to sin as judgment for suppressing the truth, for not worshiping him and not giving thanks. Now, you could say that God is no longer holding us back from sinful behavior and lets us go toward the sin that we desire, which then leads to more sins and then leads to all kinds of consequences. You could say God is letting sin run its course. There is truth in saying that. But Paul will not allow us to see this as something impersonal something random, and that God does not have a part in it. God is not just setting us free. God is giving over the sinner to various sins. It is a personal act of God's judgment. Again, we don't have to wait for the final judgment. God's wrath is being poured out every day in our lives and in this world. It is a revelation, verse 18. Of his wrath. And so when we reject God, when we suppress the truth, he sends us down the path of degeneracy, misery, corruption, and distortion. We are ignorant of God by choice. We sin willingly and knowingly, and so we reap the harvest of suppressing this truth. And so the sins that he gives us here in verses 24 to 32 are logical outcomes of seeking the truth apart from God, of worshiping the creature, and of seeking to sit on the throne of God, just like Adam and Eve from the beginning. Adam and Eve were damned to uh, because of the things that they chose. They themselves chose to reject God, and so the shame... The alienation from God, the bad relationships, the hardships of life, and ultimately death, all of that is a revelation of God's wrath against sin. And so this is true of every human ever since, except, of course, of Jesus, though he did experience the effects of sin, just not his own. And so, to varying degrees, we see these hardships, we see bad relationships, we see these problems. Um, sometimes God mercifully prevents it from being worse for some compared to others. Um, some of that's based on being exposed to the truth um, and so forth. So you'll see a variety, of course. But overall, it's the same logical uh, connection here. Suppressing the truth of God leads to all of these things. Now, let me, let me press the point a little bit more here. Okay. Paul is not merely saying you have a wrong view of God and so you behave wrongly. And that wrong behavior leads to this conclusion and these consequences. That's not merely what he is saying. What he's saying is when we behave wrongly, that's actually evidence of God's wrath in the first place. And so if you get Uh, on the internet and you're searching around and you stumble across some things you shouldn't be looking at. That's actually God's judgment, the fact that you fall into it. It is a conscious choice to sin, and that will lead to consequences. But the fact that you fall into it in the first place is an indication you've sinned prior to that. And so the sinful desires and lusts that he mentions in the next verses, the hating of our neighbor, the depraved mind, are all indications of God's displeasure. It's not merely when the tornado comes ripping through, or you get into an accident, or you have some kind of health crisis, or whatever it is. That is part of it that Paul wants us to see more. And so typically, we think that I sinned by whatever, fill in the blank. I'll just give two examples here. Let's say that you sinned by having premarital relationships. That is our sin, and we typically think the consequences are broken relationships, STDs, unplanned pregnancies, my spouse won't trust me now even though it's 30 years later or something like that. And all that is true. Or we say, I sinned by lying in some way. Let's just say you lied on your application for a job. And so again, our typical thought is, okay, I I sinned in this way, and so the consequences are, I lose my job, or I'm not promoted, or I'm demoted, or I can't get another job, or whatever it is, right? And again, that's true. Sin leads to consequences. But what Paul is saying is the sin that you committed is actually an indication of God's wrath in the first place. Paul is saying that premarital relationships is God's way of judging you for suppressing the truth about him in some way. Prior to sleeping around, you already played the harlot by exchanging God for some idol. In this context... The desire to feel loved or the desire to fit in. Prior to your lying, prior to your deceiving, you already lied to yourself, saying that God doesn't know what I'm doing, or you suppress the truth, saying there that there is no God or whatever it happens to be. Okay. <clears throat> now let's take it. In another direction, there, there's, there are a variety of rabbit trails we can go here, and let me touch on them briefly. Okay. When we face hard things in life, let's take it out of a specific sin, like premarital sex or something like that, right? When we face hard things in life, okay, there have been some floods up in the northeast here lately, lots of rain. What did some place get seven inches in a couple hours or something like that, right? Um. Typically, our response in our culture is to say, well, that's just, you know, part of life. Mother nature, of course, many will say. Uh, But even among Christians, we'll say, well, that's just the way life is sometimes. We're at the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, And and we often hear people say, well, we'll just get our insurance money and we'll start over. We don't learn our lesson. And we don't say, well, that hardship is actually God's way of getting our attention. Okay. <coughs> even that is his wrath. Okay. Um, even if we are willing to ask the question, did I do something wrong? Is God upset with me because, <coughs> whatever, I got some, some uh, health crisis or I got in an accident or something to that effect. <coughs> excuse me. Typically then we limit ourselves to a specific sinful action. I got, <coughs> excuse me, in that accident or I developed cancer because I did XYZ. Okay. <coughs> excuse me. But Paul wants us to go a step backward, if you will, a step deeper. The fact that you have a lazy husband or the fact that you've had an overbearing mother or the fact that a thief has broken in and stolen from you or the fact that you don't have encouraging friends or the fact that you have church leaders that do not uphold righteousness and truth or the fact that... Fill in the blank with any other thing. Hey, These and more are consequences of our efforts to suppress the truth about God. It's not just the consequences of a sinful action. The sinful action is a consequence of our original sin in suppressing the truth about God itself. himself. And so obviously these things happen to the unbeliever. also happens to the professing believer too. Because all of us since Adam eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All of us in one way or another are practical atheists. All of us like to sit on the throne of God. All of us like to suppress the truth and replace him with some idol. So, you know, when people say verses 18 to 32 are about the Gentiles, like, well, yeah, (coughs) But what about the rest of us? We do the same things. Let's turn a moment to Psalm 81. (coughs) Excuse me. Psalm 81 um, is a psalm of Asaph. (coughs) And uh, uh, let's pick up in verse 8. Psalm 81, verse (coughs) 8. Hear, O my people. Right? So Israelites, here are my people, and I will admonish you. O oh, Israel, if you will listen to me, <clears throat> there shall be no foreign god among you, nor shall you worship any foreign god. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Now, <clears throat> the, the uh, context of what he is saying is Israel were looking to Baal, looking to Asherah to fill their mouths. They were looking to the fertility gods to meet their daily needs. And God is saying, um, hello, you're suppressing the truth about me. Look to me, I will fill your mouth. And then notice what he says, verse 11, but my people would not heed my voice and Israel would have none of me. Now the emphasis here. Yes, they turned to Baal. Yes, they turned to Asherah. But ultimately, they turned away from God, he is saying. This is our most fundamental sin. Not stealing the candy bar, not sleeping around. Those things are sinful things, but our bigger sin is our relationship with God, and it's not so good. And so then, verse 12, So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. And so, again, you see what what the psalmist is saying here. He doesn't even mention Baal by name, but clearly that's what he's talking about. But he is saying our relationship with God is the fundamental sin here. And so you can maybe put it like this. Paul's point here is not bad things happen to good people. You often hear people say that, and, and frankly, we all think that, don't we? We all think we're pretty good people. We all think, well, I'm not as bad as that person over there. And we all think at some point in time, why is this happening to me? I don't deserve it. We all have that mindset. But Paul is saying, no, no, no. You're not good people. Bad things happen don't, uh, do not happen to good people. Paul's not even saying bad things happen because of a specific bad behavior. What Paul is saying is that bad behaviors and bad things happen because we fail to give God the glory and praise that he deserves. We are all bad people. We suppress this truth. And in the end, all of our sins are because of a failed relationship with God in some way or another. Here's Paul's point. So the sexual sins in verses 24 and 25, the sexual perversions in verses 26 and 27, these are a result of turning away from God. They are sinful in and of themselves, and they'll have consequences in and of themselves, but it's because we've turned from God. And so when you hear the homosexual Christian say, God made me this way, our answer should be, yes, he did. As a consequence for you turning away from him. Fill in the blank with something else. (laughs) God made me a grouch. God made me a critical person. God made me a worrier. You know, whatever it is. Well, yeah, he did. As a consequence for you not having the relationship with him that you should have. And so the depraved mind, the numerous unrighteous behaviors in verses 28 and following, and he culminates saying, hey, when people in the end say bad is good and good is bad, these are temporal judgments as well as sins. And so again, Paul is not telling us here that God is just setting us loose to do as we please. That's not what the giving over means. Hey. Okay? And, and, and then we you know, somehow find ourselves in a mess. God's giving us over to these sins of pride and hatred and depravity and greed and, and so forth because we have not honored him as he deserves. Some commentators have called this a judicial abandonment. It's the consequences of our initial rebellion. So you might say that Romans 1 is another way of talking And explaining Genesis 3. The feelings of shame, the covering with leaves, the hiding from God. That's what Paul's talking about here. Because ultimately, it wasn't so much that Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit. It's because they turned away from God. And by turning away from God, then they ate the piece of fruit. And then it led to these other consequences too. And so God is not releasing us in a vacuum to float where we want. No, it's like releasing a glass pitcher with falls and breaks. It's a moral gravity that is pulling us down into sin and more sin and more consequences. Again, this is not an impersonal providence. It isn't random. The fact that we didn't get any rain yesterday at our house, that's not random. What's God trying to tell us? God is not actively letting sinners go their way to a cycle of ever-increasing sin. He's actively causing it to happen. And so Paul here is saying, look, let's go to the root of our problem here. And our tendency is not to do that. And so the next time you are critical of someone, maybe that's your normal Sunday lunch conversation. The next time you make a conscious choice to sin in some way. Don't merely say, well, I I chose to sin, or I I learned that behavior from mom and dad. God is giving you over to those things because there's something not right in your relationship with him. You know, we talk about besetting sins, right? Those sinful behaviors that just... No matter. It seems like no matter what we do, we can't stop doing it. Well, God does give us thorns in the flesh. He does give us things like this that won't go away. But one of the reasons why these sins keep cropping up in our lives is because our relationship with God is not where it should be. And the more time we spend with the Lord, The more time we look to him, the less we do fall into these sins. They won't ever fully go away until heaven. But this is one of the reasons. So, again, we could go down other paths about genetic behaviors and, you know, uh, different genetic problems or something like that. You know, what about the sins of the parents and so on, you know. There are a lot of paths we can go down here. But the main thing is what about our relationship with God? So, you know, in the end, our response to hardships in our lives, our response to sin, one of the things that we should keep foremost in our thinking is thank you, Lord, it isn't any worse than it is. Because I am such a terrible sinner far worse than I ever think about myself. The good things I do are still laced with sin. The bad things I do, well, you know, I might acknowledge those, but there are far more. Remember, there are sacrifices for intentional sins and sacrifices for unintentional sins. Our our sin is so extensive that when bad things happen, Okay, whether it's a health issue, whether it's a tornado, you know, whatever it is, right? The sin that I fall prey to, we, when those things happen, we should say, God, thank you that it wasn't any worse. And thank you for sending me this sinful behavior. Thank you for sending me this hardship in my life. Because you're doing it to get my attention. So that I will cease this sinful approach to you. And then I will turn to you in repentance and faith. Okay? And so God is handing us over, giving us over to these sinful things to get our attention. Now, the unbeliever will never listen. But for God's people, like we see in the book of Judges, God sends these evil nations to come to turn Israel away from their idolatry back to God. And he's doing the same thing here for us. And so be thankful that God has not judged us according to what we really deserve. But be thankful that God does send these daily wrathful things so that we will look to him and not to ourselves. Be thankful that your parents aren't worse than they are. (laughs) Be thankful that your boss is as good as he is. Be thankful that our society hasn't completely collapsed yet. (laughs) But recognize it could be a lot worse and it really should be a lot worse. And be thankful that he does send these things because he's wanting, it's his, you know, clarion call, the trumpets of revelation, right? He's trying to get our attention. So that we will turn to him. So, yeah, I was reminded, Lori sent the update about Matt the other day. And uh, she said in that, we are thankful for food poisoning. (laughs) Because it exposed a deeper problem, right? Be thankful. I know, hear what I'm saying. Be thankful for sinful behavior. Because that's God's way of saying, hello. Hello. Remember me? Hey, okay, Let's get your relationship right with me. And so when we return to God, when we repent, when we seek to honor him, then these wrathful things will lessen. They won't ever go away completely, but they will lessen. But if we refuse to listen to his message of wrath, when the storm comes, when evil people win elections, when I'm coveting something on Wheel of Fortune or something, and when I'm prideful in my relationship with somebody else, if we refuse to listen, then the sins will just increase. It'll give us over to more and more and worse and worse sins. And so next time you do fall into sin, next time some hardship comes, ask, okay, God, what idol am I serving? What are you wanting me to let go of? that you have made so that I might hold on to you more completely. And so again, Paul's point here is to take us back, if you will, to the beginning of our sin. And here's his overall message. And so after I return uh, in a few weeks, we'll look at some of the specific sins that God gives us over to for rejecting him. Let's pray together. Our Father in God, we thank you for your word, and uh, though it is true that we could look at the things you have made and your providences, and we can learn some of these truths that I've sought to articulate here this morning, we are thankful that your word makes it abundantly clear. Lord, we I certainly ask that you would not lead us into temptation, and that you would deliver us from evil. We pray that you would do that by improving our relationship with you. That you would give us a greater desire and zeal to be in prayer, and not just the act of prayer, but in the relationship of prayer. That you would give us a greater desire to read your word, not just so we can check that religious box, but that we can hear you speak to us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a greater desire to worship with your people. Not so that we can look good in front of others, but so that we can relate to you in a corporate setting. Lord, we are thankful that uh, you do not give us as we deserve. And we are thankful ultimately, of course, that Christ has taken the punishment that we deserve. But we are thankful even as your people that you regularly send us these sins and these hard things. That we might repent as David did in Psalm 51. And that we might uh, turn to you and be that man or woman after God's own heart as David was. And so, Lord, we pray for your strength by your Spirit, that you would enable us in these ways, that we would not fight against your hard providences, that we wouldn't uh, just focus on secondary and tertiary things, but that we would return to the root. And that is ultimately our relationship with you. And so we pray for your grace in all of this. And we pray this then in Jesus' name. Amen.